scripture reading this morning is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 25 to verse 38. And I think of these passages from, of the Christmas season and how familiar they are to us. And I just always ask God to, you know, please stop us and please let us see it from a fresh angle and not look over it just because it's so familiar. So we'll read Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, Now, Lord... Thou hast let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving day and night with fastings and prayer. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God, and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We are entering into the story of Scripture. What is God's intent in giving us the story? Why did God create? All of it is for his person and purpose. We have creation, we have transgression, we have condemnation, we have redemption. It speaks to the power of God, the justice of God, the grace of God, and all these things give him glory. We've noted how the villain has been introduced into the story, and God foretells of a hero, a deliverer and deliverance. We've seen that in Genesis 3.15. We see it in chapter 3, verse 21 as well. And now we have the hero's arrival. And what a phenomenal, phenomenal thought. Galatians chapter 4 and 5 read as follows. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem them from the curse of the law. This is God's intent. This is God's design. We have considered the Old Testament text in overview, and we have noted that all of the types and all of the shadows, all the figures, all the pictures find their fulfillment, find their fulfillment in the arrival of God's hero. Many of us have read stories that have pushed us to the limit of our endurance. Novels that perhaps reach past a thousand pages, 1200 pages, 1500 pages, and they exhaust us. They were long and tedious reads. Yet there are those, those other works whom some would call classics that hold us spellbound and whose very absence calls out to us to finish. The Bible is a story that contains all of life. There are approximately 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 
Yet the story of God is not simply read like any other story. This story was written before the foundation of the world was poured and will continue after times and seasons cease to be marked. We are, as his people, compelled to know the story and to enter into the story so that our lives are lived in the story. You and I are a part of God's story. It isn't as if the story of God written in the text of Scripture is unfolding and we are somehow on the outside of it. We are a part of that story. For the sake of this study's weight, I am going to propose simplicity and trust him to make it palatable to our ears. We have waited for centuries. We have waited for centuries for this statement. And now John the baptizer points to an individual whose presence begins to dominate the landscape. And with fulfilled expectation and robust fervor, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was able to identify the hero of God's story. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16, Jesus is with his disciples. They're in the city of Caesarea Philippi. He turns to his disciples and he asks them the question, Whom do men say that I am? They respond by saying, Some say you are John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Some say one of the prophets. And then Jesus says to his disciples, but whom do you say that I am? Peter, understanding the figures, understanding the types, understanding the shadows, understanding the picture says, thou art the one, thou art the anointed, thou art the hero of God, the son of the living God. Everyone at that point in time who was waiting on God, waiting for the hero, Identify Jesus Christ as the anointed, as the hero. Everything we looked at over the last several weeks and continue to look at will flow from this singular idea. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God spoke to the serpent, he said to the serpent, The seed, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And that the seed of the serpent would bruise his heel. There was a distinct deliverer, a distinct person that would be coming. And that person would bring deliverance with him. The hero is God's solution to sin's problem. The question raised by sin will be answered in full. The question raised by sin will be answered in full by the hero's arrival. What we understood in type will find its fulfillment in the anti-type. The substance casting the shadow will appear. And that's what we have been waiting for all along. Although, and I take this as a personal challenge, especially during the Advent season. When we talk about the Advent season in the church calendar, we are talking about the four Sundays that precede Christmas. And although the hero has arrived... We continue to ignore his presence. We enter Advent with little thought and preparation. We do not anticipate or expect his appearance. I do not believe celebrating Christmas undermines the truth it contains. I know that we casually, and when we fill out various uh, Christmas cards, we say, well, we trust that you will have a 
enjoyable or restful holiday season. And we fail to realize that holiday is holy day. And we speak of Christmas and we strip it of its significance. And thus, I do not believe celebrating Christmas undermines the truth it contains. But I do believe that we must not forget who and what this is all about. When we consider the season of Advent, our own actions and attitudes towards Christmas can often appear vulgar, if not blasphemous. We have so commercialized the story of God that only a hard right turn will put us back on course. And we have so trivialized the whole that we can barely discern the parts. What is this all about? It is about a very, very distinct person who came with a very, very distinct purpose. God is right now in our time calling to us from the distant shore. He invites us to open our eyes and to stop the clutter that blocks our vision, to stop the incessant noise that drowns out the striking sound of his glory. This morning, with all that is happening around us, God's desire is that we as his people, this community of faith, would recognize the person of Christ. We are living, we are living in the miracle called Christmas. We are living in the miracle called Christmas. We are living in the story, his story. He wants us to see his person. He wants us to note his purpose. And God is convinced that if we but hear the whisper of his voice, if we but touch the hem of his garment, we will never be the same. Our desire this morning is to note that there is a very distinct person that has been foretold. And that person is now in the story. There is no question, there is no doubt as to who that person is of whom Genesis 3.15 spoke of. It is my desire in our next study, which will be Christmas Eve, that we might know the period in which he came. There was a very distinct period in which God's person appears. And then why did he come? Next week we will see the hero's work. But for this morning's study, I want us to consider the idea of the person himself. There are three primary ideas taken from Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 that we will note. We will note that there is a very distinct person, a very distinct period of time in which he came, and then a very distinct purpose. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have this idea of the seed of the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent, and that the serpent's seed will bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 speaks of a seed in particular, not simply collectively or generically. There is a specific seed coming from the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent. And the serpent will not simply bruise the heel of the woman's seed in general, but there is a particular heel that he will bruise. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, when we consider Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, Galatians 3.16, echoing this idea, makes the statement, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. 
In John chapter 3, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he makes this statement in verses 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his seed, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. A very distinct reason as to why the person of God appears. In reading these verses, we see that God sent his Son, his only begotten Son. Jesus Christ is the promised seed who would bruise the head of the serpent. The entire idea of Christmas is the sending of God's only begotten Son into the world. This babe in the manger is none other than God's only begotten Son. Think of how we have contorted this truth. We affirm it. We sing of it. But do we actually enter into the story? Do we see ourselves as a part of this story? My attention today is not focused on the secular media or even the unbelieving world. I would expect them to ignore this truth. My attention is on us and me as to how our actions and attitudes have betrayed the depth of this truth. It is impossible for me to see the depths of men's hearts, but we must not neglect this truth. It always behooves us to make much of him and little of us. All of this... As we contemplate and think on the Advent season, all of this is about him. All of it. And think of all the various activities you and I have been engaged in over the last several weeks. And most of it is dominated by us and not him. And yet as we gather Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, all of that is but a shadow cast by the substance. All of that is but a type, a figure, a picture of something much larger, far superior. All of it is about God. For the faithful Jew, one of the most important events described by God in the Old Testament is the coming of the Messiah to assert God's authority on earth to redeem his chosen to himself. Most Jewish scholars see this described in the Old Testament in two ways. There is outright prophecy, a description of some attribute the Messiah will have, or some fact which will be true of him, there are also pictures in advance or types where events in history act as analogies to some truth about Messiah. We must understand that it is from shadow to fulfillment. We're going to look at eight of those prophecies, eight of those shadows, eight of those pictures this morning. And what I find interesting is when you handle an Old Testament text and you consider what that text means in its context, the conclusion that is brought by the New Testament interpreter often looks very different from what I read when I read that text in its original context. But what they saw under Holy Spirit guidance is a type, a shadow, a picture, a figure of Christ. And why is that so? Because God wrote into the story the hero. And the entire story is about the person and purpose of God. The Old Testament was preparing the way for Christ. It was anticipating him, pointing to him, 
leading up to him. Everything we read from Genesis through Malachi is preparing us for his appearance. And thus when John the Baptist points to Jesus Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God. He had every reason to say that. When Peter in Caesarea Philippi said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was saying, You're the hero. And everything that has been given to us in type is now fulfilled in this one anti-type. All the promises, all the prophecies. He is the fulfillment. For Jesus to truly be the Messiah described in the Old Testament, he would have to fulfill every messianic prophecy. And depending on whom you ask, there are well over 300 statements concerning the Messiah, the one, the story's hero. As we consider the hero's arrival, we will consider only eight And all of them will be taken from the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And thus I have invited you to turn to Matthew's Gospel. We will read each of these eight statements. And all of them are found in the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And then I will seek to complement those passages by the first three chapters of the Gospel of Luke. What I find interesting is that the eight items that we will consider this morning do not correspond exactly to the Old Testament text. But when understood Christologically, they will find meaning in him. And this is what I find so fascinating as we consider these eight ideas, that all of them assure us, they confirm to us, that from Genesis through Malachi in our English translation, in our English Bibles, that these eight things speak of Christ. We'll note these eight ideas. First, his lineage. Secondly, his birth. Thirdly, his safety. Fourthly, his anguish. Then his residence. What will he be called? Then the forerunner. His message. And finally, his verification. How will we know that this is the one? How will we know that the story's hero has arrived? The Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is now coming to fruition. That the ultimate and eternal sacrifice of God will be offered and salvation will have been secured. But I'm going to begin by reading Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And because we are going to be looking at a host of passages, I will be putting those passages on the overhead so that you can see them for yourself. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read this statement, the record of the genealogy of Jesus. Now listen carefully to how it reads. The Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Jesus, the hero. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Both these statements are taken from 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 through 16, and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Both identify that God will give us a particular person, and this person is Jesus. Consider also Luke chapter 3, verses 30 
31 and 38. The son of Simeon in describing the lineage of Jesus Christ. The son of Judah. Remember those passages we noted from Genesis 49 verse 10 and following. That the scepter will not depart from Judah. The son of Judah. The son of Joseph. The son of Jonah. The son of Eliakim. Notice how it says the son of David. The son of Enosh, verse 38. The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus Christ was from Adam, Abraham, Judah, and David. He has by right of lineage the authority to sit as king over the nation of Israel. He is identifiably, he is identifiably the hero of God's story. His lineage proves this. Secondly, let us consider his birth. Matthew chapter 1, please consider with me verses 22 and 23. Notice what it says. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is a very typical formula in Matthew's narrative, in Matthew's account, where it says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, verse 23, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We know that the text quoted is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Remember the promise in Genesis 3.15. It is the seed of the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent. Notice how Galatians 4.4 picks up this same idea. In the fullness of time, God sent forth a son born of a woman. The New Testament is careful in how it states the relationship between Joseph, Mary's husband, and Jesus, her son. Notice the language of Luke 3.23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. It is important to recall how the culture in which these words were penned were strongly patriarchal and not matriarchal. From Genesis 3.15 through Isaiah 7.14 and on to Luke 3.23 and Galatians 4.4, Jesus Christ is identified as the Son of God incarnate through the womb of Mary, his earthly mother. Consider the message by the angel Gabriel to the shepherds who were present at his birth in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. In the same region... There were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold. And again, remember, the believing remnant lived with hope and expectancy and anticipation of the one, the anointed, the hero. And this angel says to these individuals, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a hero, a savior, 
who is Christ, the anointed, the Lord. All of heaven pointed to this child. This child is God's hero who will come to save his people from their sin. And his name will be called Jesus. For he will save his people from their sin. We have read the lengthy passage from Luke chapter 2 verses 25 through 32. Concerning the prophet Simeon. And that of Anna the prophetess. But consider with me again this text. And note how these words are read. Think of the weight of this moment in time. They have been waiting For the hero's arrival who would deliver them from their sin. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Looking, looking for the consolation of Israel. Looking. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death. Before he had seen the Lord's Christ Before he had seen the Lord's hero. And he came in the spirit. Into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus. To carry out for him the custom of the law. Simeon. Took the child in his arms. And he blessed God. And he said now Lord. You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, you have fulfilled your promise to me. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This child, your hero, will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Then consider Anna, the prophetess, in Luke 2, 36 through 38. It says in verse 38, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God. And listen to this, and continued to speak of him, the Christ child. Both Simeon and Anna said, this is the hero. They continued to speak of him to all those who were looking Are we looking? Am I looking? Who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. He has come. And he is here. We see this in his lineage. We see it in his birth. Thirdly, we see it in his safety. Please turn to chapter 2. Verses 13 through 15. And again... What I find so fascinating is that there isn't necessarily an exact correspondence with an Old Testament text like we have in Isaiah 7.14. But what we do have is a revelation from God from Genesis through Malachi that speaks in type and figure, picture and shadow of God's hero. And in chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel, verses 13 through 15, notice how it reads, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. 
Notice the phrase, the formula. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, very familiar passage, the whole Exodus narrative. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I find these passages absolutely amazing. Would I, as a casual reader of the Old Testament text, see in Israel the Christ? Probably not. And yet, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament author takes this historical, theologically rich narrative, and he sees Christ in the narrative. I fully recognize the debatable nature of what we are considering, but the New Testament author clearly understood, the New Testament author clearly understood the Old Testament text Christologically. What this means is that in its original context, it meant something very tangible and concrete to that initial author, but to the New Testament writer, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they saw Christ in the text. This has truly transformed the way I read my Old Testament texts. It tells me an historical, literal story. But in that story, God gives me by way of figure and picture, shadow and type, the Christ. Not only his safety is spoken of in Matthew 2, 13 through 15, but notice verses 16 through 18. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And again, consider what is being stated. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. We see the hero's anguish. No one reading the text in its historical context would conclude that this event corresponded to what we now read in Matthew chapter 2, 16 through 18. But what we do not see is how God in shadow speaks to the greater event. All of these fulfillments, all of these passages are pointing us to God's hero. Notice Matthew chapter 2 verses 19 through 23. We note his residence. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. Notice the formula. This was to fulfill which was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. I find this absolutely startling how in these historical narratives these old testament passages god is giving us pictures shadows figures types and all of them are pointing to the great anti-type all of them are pointing to the substance that casts the shadow now we see a much clearer exact correspondence in matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 We see his forerunner. Look what it says. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Consider Luke chapter 1, verses 15 and following. We now have the one's forerunner it says in luke chapter 1 verse 15 for he will be great in the sight of the lord and he will drink no wine or liquor speaking of john the forerunner and he will be filled with the holy spirit while yet in his mother's womb and he will turn many of the sons of israel back to the lord their god it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of elijah We have seen this from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. But we see that John is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And this is John's purpose, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. As we considered these things in shadow, I was asked the question, how is John the Elijah? Our text tells us that John is the Elijah. John is the forerunner of the one who was to come. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. It is a lengthy passage. But what I want us to note is that early on in the text, we have all these indicators that are pointing us to a single person. And this person is fulfilling the prophecy. They are fulfilling the promise. This person is the seed of the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent. Luke chapter 1, Zacharias, the father of John the baptizer, makes this statement. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. He's referring to all those things we have seen already in type and shadow, in figure. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet, the forerunner of the Most High, of God's hero. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We have all indicators pointing to this one person. We have his forerunner. John has come in fulfillment of the promise, in fulfillment of the prophecy. Look with me now at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Two final passages, two final thoughts. Multiple passages, but two final thoughts. First, his message. So we have all these indicators initially in Matthew's gospel, and all of them are pointing us to this one, to God's hero. And there is this period of time where the hero is silent verbally. But now he is identified by John as the one. And here is the statement we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything that you have heard about from the past that is contained in the text of Holy Writ, all of this, is now coming to pass. I am here. God's promises are being fulfilled. I always find it interesting that nowhere in this New Testament text does he explain for us what is meant by the kingdom of heaven. And the reason why we do not have a definition of this idea is because to the Jew, from the Old Testament, what that was is clear. God's hero has shown up. And with him comes deliverance. So it is very apparent that the message confirms for us who the one is. And then finally, Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. Notice what it says. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee. And what we have here is a summary of what our Lord has been doing. He's been going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He is healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. All of these things are indicators. All of these things are our verification that God's hero has shown up. When we read a passage like Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, there is not necessarily 
an exact correspondence to any Old Testament text. And yet this is the flavor of the Old Testament concerning the one, concerning the hero. In Isaiah 25, verses 6 and following, the text of Scripture reads as follows. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all people. What is this covering which is over all people? Even the veil which is stretched over all nations. What is this veil? What is this covering? He will swallow up death for all time. When the hero arrives, death will meet its demise. When the hero arrives, the reign of sin will end. When the hero arrives. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it. And it will be said in that day. Behold this is our God. For whom we have waited. That he might save us. We have waited for God's hero. And now he has arrived. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is the one. Earlier we noted that there are well over 300 prophecies, 300 pictures, 300 shadows, 300 types describing God's hero. We have considered only eight To get a feel for the probabilities involved of one person fulfilling but eight of these ideas. To have one person do this. And the odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the messianic prophecies is one out of ten with 17 zeros. That's a lot of zeros. But for one person to fulfill only eight is ten to the 17th power. Some have used this word picture to help us comprehend just how vast this idea is. If you took the state of Texas and you filled it with half dollars two feet deep, and on one of the half dollars you placed an X, and you were blindfolded and placed in the midst of those half dollars, for you to grab the half dollar with an X on it would be the same of one person fulfilling but eight of the prophecies. And yet Jesus fulfilled hundreds of the prophecies. All of them were pointing to the one. To the one. All who love God wait for with expectancy for the one. For the anointed. The hero who will save them from their sin. Both individually and nationally. And all indicators point to Jesus Christ. He is the one. The hero has come. It is for us to rejoice. As we think of this, that Jesus Christ is God's hero. As we think of this, what do we need to change in order to honor the hero's arrival? It is our passionate prayer that we do not take the season of Advent lightly. We have this enormous opportunity to pause and reflect deeply on God's hero. 
What preparations are we making in anticipation of his arrival? He has come once, but he is coming again. The story is all about the person and purpose of God. What are we doing in recognition of this? All of this is about him and his purpose. All of it. As believers, we have the unique privilege. It is for us a very unique privilege to pause every year and reflect on the storyline of God. It is something that we try to celebrate 24-7. But we get distracted. We get bogged down. Our lives are filled with clutter and noise. We become blind and deaf to the person and purpose of God. Advent is a time for us to simply stop and to remember what this is all about. It is all about him. And we have this unique privilege to pause and to reflect on the storyline of God, to consider the villain and then the hero and to give God glory for his power, his justice, and his grace. And it is my prayer that we do not squander this tremendous opportunity or trivialize the hero's arrival. I do pray that you'll join us afterward and enjoy the fellowship of God's people, realizing that this fellowship is but a picture of more that is to come, that you will join us if you are able on Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock. And enter again into the story and not be distracted by all the clutter and all the noise. To think deeply on God's person. Let us pray. Our Father, I thank you for the opportunity that is ours to consider the story. Your story. And how you have written into the story a hero. And it's not just any hero. It is the hero. Father, you have been preparing us for hundreds of years, for thousands of years in type and shadow, figure and picture. Some of those are somewhat obscure and misty. Some are very, very clear. And all of them point to one person. They all point to Jesus. Father, it is with hearts that are fulfilled, yet still yearning. You have come, you are here, and yet you are coming again. God, help us to see our lives as a part of your story. We ask this for the sake of your name. Amen.